Happy Thursday, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Airport Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest disaster movie ever made, the 1970 movie Airport. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of CovertOps.tv. And uh, we have a really fantastic uh, guest uh, today uh, joining us in the cockpit. It is uh, Rob Draper, cinematographer extraordinaire. He shot uh, Cerulli favorites like Halloween 5 and Tales from the Crypt, and he's now shooting The Fosters in Rosewood. Hello, Rob. G'day, gents. How are you going? <laughs> have, a, have, a, have a great time. <laughs> did, did I mention he has a killer Australian accent? <laughs> I just flew in especially for the interview. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Going that extra mile for the show. We appreciate it very much. Wow. Yeah, well, oh, no problem. Well, speaking of uh, flying in, in in the middle of a disaster, uh, we're, we start, we're starting off with uh, Van Heflin locking himself in the bathroom, getting ready to uh, decide whether or not he's going to blow up a 707. And uh, we get to the. This is actually the the action climax of the show. The, uh, the, the he does decide to blow things up, and uh, all hell breaks loose about five seconds into this particular minute. Um, and a very nice for 1970s. It was quite a dramatic floor effect for the uh, you know, for the time. It seemed extremely realistic. Yeah, the 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 way that the when you look at. A 1970s disaster film compared to what can be done now, it's it's sort of like night and day. But but looking at that old clip, um, it really is quite astounding how realistic that whole uh, explosion sequence looked. Yeah, for, from what I understand, I haven't been able to find out much information on the special effects part of this. But apparently, they they just set up a large airplane motor right at the front of the of the fuselage set and turned it on and just threw, threw things like blankets <laughs> and chairs and whatever whatever would float mm. through the air. and uh, <laughs> Well, well it's interesting. If you watch it, there's a lot of uh, a lot of white and yellow sheets of paper going through, which I guess are script pages. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> they can't wait, wait, to get, wait to get rid of them. Well, yeah, it was funny. I, I, I was wondering, someone must have been either reading a script or writing a script in the front of the plane because there was so much paper going through. Yeah, it looked like they had just uh, driven the plane through an office max or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But I, I would think but, that that would be one yeah, take. No, it looked pretty convincing. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I don't know if the uh, if the actors got extra combat pay for having all that stuff. You know, there's, it looked like every uh, Universal contract player was on the set that day, and uh, getting bounced around with all that stuff. They did have a couple of different shots, I noticed, when they kept cutting back and forth. So I would assume that they would do several run-through of this. I don't think they had, uh, you know, sometimes on special effects shots, they'll have several lockdown cameras to get it all in one take. But uh, it Yeah, my, my, guess, my guess is on, that, on something like that back then, they would have run probably a few cameras on it because um, uh, the, the lighting on it was very general lighting. And uh, and my guess is that they did that just so they could have the camera, uh, have cameras wherever they wanted them without having to worry about, um, you know, shadows what, and... what it looked like too much. Yeah. Yeah. It... And and you know a little about uh, the cinematographer on this movie, uh, Ernest Laszlo. Can, what, what do you remember about him, Rob? Well, I, you know, I, I never knew him because he uh, he actually died in uh, 1984. Um, uh, and he was 88 when he died, but he had a, an incredible resume and he did a lot of Stanley Kramer's films. And 
one of the most notable, I think, was Judgment at Nuremberg, which is oh, which is shot in black and white, um, and uh, uh, is you know a, a stunning looking film. I mean, the the cinematography on that was spectacular, and I, I think that's the one he won the Academy Award for. I would imagine that it it must have been very difficult in in these large scale scenes just to figure out how to shoot, how to light, and how to uh, manage the con- the consistency. Especially if you're dealing, you know, you're saying Judgment of Nuremberg being a black and white film, this is color, trying to keep the white balance correct. And uh, would most of that be with the lighting folks, or with, uh, would he be working back and forth with the Technicolor people, trying to make sure that the the color matching was all right? Well, the color matching would have been done later on in in post when he was sitting down with the color timer to do the uh, to do the final timing on the film. But um, that film was shot on. Uh, on 5254 uh, Kodak color stock, which was pretty much the only one available at the time, and it was 100 ASA, so very slow speed. Um, and not only that, had slow speed lenses. So if you look at all the scenes, the scene in the cockpit and the scene in the bathroom, they're all lit with with very hard light. And the reason for that is that that back using those very slow film stocks, you couldn't use, uh, well, very few people use soft light then anyway because you just couldn't get the f-stop that you needed to be able to shoot. So mm. everything's hard. And if you look at it, all the shadows are very, very hard. And uh, that's really a result of the slow lenses and the very slow film stock that they had to work with. But, um, yeah, the the final... The final balancing of the color and everything would have been done later on when uh, they were doing post, and uh, he was sitting down with a color timer. Yeah, the I, I, you were saying about about keeping that uh, keeping everything in focus because of the lighting and the, the depth of field that you have to have on this, especially when you're looking all the way down the length of the fuselage. I mean, the the folks in the front row are in as much focus as the folks back by the the galley there. So I would imagine that would be yeah. Yeah, and 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 in actual fact, that's quite a hard that that's quite a hard shot to pull off, given the type of lighting that they had to do, because they had to use really hard lights. It all had to come from inside the plane, and it couldn't come from over the camera because everyone in the front would be bright and everyone at the back would be dark. But it's very even all the way down the length of the plane, so uh, that's that's not an easy shot to pull off, given the type of lighting that they would have had to do back then. Now, now with uh, current cameras and with um, with the speed of the cameras and with the latitude they've got and the speed of our lenses, um, you you get away with murder literally because um, you can just use the natural lights in the plane, turn them on, and you can shoot. So um, it's much easier to get a more realistic look, and it's much easier to balance the light out. I would imagine that in that confining a set, I mean, it is long, but it's very uh, short. That must have been a really hot set to work on with all those lights just basically right overhead. Oh, yeah. They must have been been drenched in there. Yeah, and they're all all wearing winter clothes, too, to fit in with the the storyline. It's dreadful. Um, But uh, quite a a good action scene for the time. I'm I'm thinking of uh, other... It, you know the, the Dirty Harry movies would be coming shortly, and uh, uh, I'm just trying to think of some some major action scenes at the time. Peck and Paul was big, but that was mostly shot outdoors. So this was kind of breaking new ground in terms of getting 
uh, close-in tight disasters. I mean, things that would set up stuff for like Poseidon Adventure and stuff like that. Yep, and it and it's still um, it's still a very long way from from what you would see now. Obviously, you know, there's the cameras were much bigger and heavier, and they're all locked down on cranes or dollies. So, if you look at all the shots, the shots are all basically static shots and let the actors do the movement. Whereas now you would have moving cameras all over the place. Yeah. But I'm just looking through the the scenes here now again. And if you look at them, the the shots are very carefully staged so that you you don't see one of the sides of the plane. So my guess is that the set was um, that, that each side of the fuselage could be removed and then they could light from the side. Yeah, the, the, uh, from what I understand, it had uh, wild walls and a wild ceiling, so they could just keep dropping things in and moving them back as they needed them. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you and you can see that you know the way they've the way they've set the shots up so that they could pull walls out and light from the side. Yeah, and ca- just carefully avoiding the ceiling light so that you you didn't you didn't see anything up after. I mean, they they have the suggestion of an arch, but you, you don't see anything above them. So, yep. Uh, quite a and it I, like you were saying that trying to keep trying to keep the lights out of the scene, they were limited in terms of, you know, because they had to have the light, they're really, the way you'd shoot this now, I and mean, we talk frequently about the movie Flight with Denzel Washington that, that that's shot in a whole different way, very dynamic camera movements and, uh, and lots of, uh, you know, intercutting back and forth in and out of the, uh, the aircraft. And this one, you really can't do that simply because there's just, there's no way to, to, to put that on, a, on film on a camera uh, the way this one looks. No, and and uh, and part of the reason for that is the cameras were back then were so heavy and cumbersome. You know that was that was right at the beginning of um, of going into the lighter weight cameras, and so they wouldn't have had anything available. And also, audience weren't used to that sort of uh, filmmaking back then. Anyway, they, they were used to the camera the camera being locked down so that you presented a proscenium and the play and and the actors played out in front of it much the same as you would on a stage play mm, and that was and that point. was yeah that was just the convent the filmmaking convention and, and if you look at look at all of david lean's films um you very rarely see a moving camera unless he moves it to give accent to uh to a particular story point most of the time they're locked down classic fantastic compositions and uh that was as much a function of the size of uh, an immobility of the equipment as it is uh, a, a method of storytelling. Yeah, not. A, but it's funny. I do remember uh, Dirty Harry because I love that film, and that came out a year later. And there was, uh, it wasn't like films today, but there, there definitely was a lot of moving cameras. There was, you know, the shot uh, from the roof of the bus coming under where Dirty Harry is silhouetted on on the bridge and things like that. So I guess it was starting to come into use. Yeah, well, uh, Dirty Harry was shot by uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Frank Stanley. And um, he, uh, uh, that that was around the time of Bullet as well. And Bullet pretty much revolutionized um, the way films were made, especially uh, especially anything with um, with cars and motorbikes and things like that, the 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 whole uh, whole dynamic of uh, filmmaking changed with with those sort of mm-hmm. films. 
and the uh, Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, um, uh, and Bullet were were three films that really sort of changed the whole way people looked at how you could tell those stories. Yeah, I'm mm. picking that up with uh, they they would go on to uh, Seven Ups. That's pretty much the same. They were using the same camera movements in the Seven Ups, so that became kind of the the, the convention for for most yep. of the 70s of doing, doing that that cutting on action style. Um, yeah. If now back in the time when they were doing this, uh, you know, nowadays you'd be able to you, typically you'd storyboard it and you'd be able to figure shot to shot and and figure out what was needed for the shots. Did they use storyboards for a movie like this back then, or what what was the uh, what was the process for a cinematographer to sit down with the uh, with the director and the editor and decide on how how these were going to be laid out? You know, that's a damn good question, and uh, I'm I'm not too sure that uh, storyboarding would have been done back then. I think it would have been more um, uh, just sitting down and, and shot listing it out. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really I really sort of can't answer that question because I don't know what um, what the technique was back then. But but my guess is that it, it wouldn't have been storyboarded. It would have more uh, been more just very detailed shot listing. Just, just run, running through the script and writing in the margin saying this is this is where we're going to set this up and maybe drawing a thumbnail at, at most if... Uh, yeah, and I'm, and I mean, you know, when when you sit down with a director before you start shooting a movie, the the process is to go through scene by scene and break and 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 thoroughly break it down in terms of story, uh, how the how the director wants to tell the story, and also the the best way of capturing those uh, those elements uh, on camera. So, you know, you talk about focal length and you talk about depth of field and you talk about what f-stop you're going to shoot it at and how you're going to light it and uh, and all those elements so that you have a pretty clear picture in your mind of what the movie looks like, regardless of whether you've got storyboards or not. And I know when I go into um, a feature film especially, I can see that film from start to finish as clear as if I was watching it projected on a, in a theatre. And um, that's the same for the director, same for the production designer, art director, ward, uh, wardrobe, hair, makeup, and, and the actors. Because if you don't see the film that clearly from start to finish, um, it's very hard to shoot, <laughs> to shoot out a sequence and make the film be a coherent, uh, tell a coherent story. When you're working, so, when you work with uh, with set design art directors, do you, as a cinematographer, do you work with them separately from the director, or do you do you usually uh, send your responses of how things should be set up through the director? How how does that process work? Well, basically, you you talk with the director and you find out what he wants and how he wants to tell the story. And once once you've got everything locked down with him he's already had a discussion with the production designer because the production designer will quite often be on before the dp but um once once you've got a pretty good idea of what the director wants you then can will sit down with all the other departments and tell them what you need from them in terms of uh you know what colors are going to work best to tell the story and uh uh what you need in the sets uh, for example if you're shooting 185 to 1 or 235 to 1 uh, in anamorphic format, you need a different type of set design uh, to, to for, sorry, you need a different type of set design if you're shooting wide, you know, uh, anamorphic to a normal widescreen. So, 
all those discussions go on, but after you've talked with the director and and you've and you've really got a good idea of what the director wants, then it's your job to go and make sure all the other part departments supply you uh, on set with all the things you need to make sure you can deliver what the director wants. A question now: the uh, this this movie being in the seventies, being Universal, being you know looking at the television audience that would come after the feature release. Uh, it's shot so that the 4x3 area in the center of the screen would provide most of the story so they wouldn't have to do a lot of pan and scan uh, post-production. Do you still uh, design a, a, a screen for 4x3, or do you just consider it that that's kind of a passe thing nowadays? Um, no, pretty much no one does that anymore. Um, there, There is a way you can shoot, in, in actual fact, a an anamorphic film is actually shot in 4x3. But it's four by three squeezed, right. and uh, so you use an anamorphic lens, which squeezes the the image into a four by three. It's it's not really four; it's called academy format, but it's essentially four by three. Uh, and then it's de-anamorphosed in the theatre to to fill the wide screen. Um, back in the eighties and early nineties, the when you shot for uh, for a television. You had to. I mean, you were obviously shooting four by three there, but as as uh, wide screen came in, uh, the the rule went out that you had to. You did have to frame uh, frame for a four by three crop, and that's that's terrible. I mean, you know, you you're not using you're not using the frame to tell the story the way it should be told. But that's not the case anymore. I mean, everyone now is shooting. It's uh, pretty much 16 by 9, um, although I will say that we still shoot uh, essentially Academy aspect ratio when we're doing uh, anamorphic and digital as well. So so you still use anamorphic lens to squeeze onto the into the Academy aperture and then you de-squeeze in the final print. Have you ever shot uh, IMAX or any of the other uh, large, large format uh, films? No, I haven't. I haven't done any of the large formats. Um, uh, really, the the I've only shot thirty five, um, but I am looking at doing a feature film uh, in the next uh, twelve to eighteen months, which will be shooting on sixty five millimeter digital. Uh, do you use red box or uh, red camera at all? Have you? Or, I mean, have you have you looked at, at getting into that? Or I'm, I'm wondering what's your cameras of choice nowadays. Um, my camera of choice is the is Araflex. Um, I've I grew up on on Araflex. Um, I started my career on Arri, and I've always used Arri. And um, I I hear all these technical discussions about what camera is best. You know, the Red's best, or the Black Magic's best, or or the Alexa's best, or whatever. Um, there's no such thing as the best camera. To me, a camera is a box with a hole in it, and and all that all that box with a hole in it does is record whatever I put in front of it, and so really I'm the qualifying factor, not the camera. Um, and so as a DP, if you know all the parameters of the camera, you can use any camera you want. I happen to use Araflex because that's that's my preference. Araflex is a system. Uh, the entire system comes from the one company, rather than with Red where. Everything's third party. The only thing you get from Red really is the camera body. Everything else is a bolt-on. 
Um, but it's more a thing to do with uh, loyalty, what I'm familiar with. I like Aeroflex equipment. I know it's always going to be solid. I get fantastic backup from the company, and it's a fantastic camera. So um, uh, I know all the parameters of that camera, and so that's the camera that I prefer to use. That That's not saying that one is better than the other. Um, it's just the camera that I happen to prefer to use. If you're familiar, I guess it, it lets you don't have to sit there learning it while, because you know this. I mean, you know what it's going to look like coming out of the box when what, what you're yeah. getting in. So. And, and, and quite honestly, as a DP, I mean, once upon a time, we used to have multiple film stocks. You know, we had we had uh, 100 ASA, 250 ASA, 50 ASA, uh, 500 ASA in Kodak, and then we had the same in Fuji. And before Agfa went out of business, there were two film stocks in Agfa. And you had to learn those film stocks and you had to know what they did because you weren't watching it on a high-def monitor. You, you had to know how those film stocks reacted to everything you did. Um, and basically, it's the same with these cameras. You've got to learn all the cameras uh, because the camera is now essentially your film stock. And um, and you can change the ASA rating in the cameras and changing the, oh, the ISO, ISO rating. Um, so you can change it from 100 ISO to 200 ISO to 400 to 800 to 1600. And you've got to know what happens at each of those ratings. Um, and it's essentially the same as it was in films. So you can switch your ISO and, and then the behavior of the camera changes at each ISO. And as a DP, you know that. And so you know what you've got to do to to compensate for those changes. Do you find yourself working in a lot more low light situations uh, nowadays? Or, I mean, I'm trying to figure what what is the, the more common look that you see? I mean, are, are, is the standard now for shooting stuff low light and not going for brilliant daytime pictures or how, how uh... uh look it, it it depends on the story you know i'm when when i shoot on the fosters uh, i'm not the series dp on that i i just do second unit and uh double up days and additional photography for them and the the primary dp is case van ostrom uh, who's the president of the asc but he um he likes to shoot at very low light levels and uh with the maximum signal level uh, on the vector scope at around uh, 30 units, which is very low. Um, now, what that does, it gives it a more film-like look, uh, and and you can create a lot more mood, and you can work at much lower light levels, and you can work very fast. On the other hand, on Rosewood, they use a lot of light because it's set in Miami, and it's got to look really bright and vibrant colors and crisp and sharp and hard daylight slamming in through windows. So on that, you're working at um, at around 75 to 85 units on the vector, on the waveform monitor. Wow. Um, and and much higher, much higher levels and much deeper f-stops. So you've got more depth of field. It's crisper. It's cleaner. It's sharper. More contrast. It's just different look. Yeah, a lot more contrasty. So. Yeah. It depends, and I've I've got to do whatever is set for that show, um, because I've got to when I take over on uh, on the days that I do, I've got to match what the what the series DP is doing. But in terms of my own preference, um, I when I was shooting on film, I always shot as wide open as I possibly could. If I had one point three or or two 
uh, f2 lenses i would be shooting wide open because i like really shallow depth of field and and i like to be able to work as fast as possible and the lower the light level the the faster you can work and with a shallow depth um, of field you're telling the story up front without having to worry about distractions of the background well that's true i mean it puts a lot of pressure on your crew because uh, your focus pullers uh, got a much harder job to do to keep things in focus when the actors are moving around and especially now with um, uh, with all the movement with camera and with actors and, and a lack of rehearsal time the, the focus pullers have got to be really good so I tend not to shoot wide open anymore I'm shooting more around a 2.8 or a 3.2 or a 4 um, and sometimes I'll go to a 360 degree shutter which gives the, the assistant a little bit more depth of field so it makes their job a little bit easier especially with all the movement well uh th this next minute that we're be that we're going to be talking about uh tomorrow has a, has a lot of uh very dark scenes and uh, i would imagine it would be difficult to shoot at that time um but we're we're just about done here today so let's let's pick up the rest of this discussion uh tomorrow uh for folks listening in uh if you'd like to learn more about uh uh, we're, uh, about Rob and his work, we have some links on uh, today's episode page, which you can visit at airportminute.com. Just go to the current episode page, and it'll it'll lay it all out for you. Um, also, you can visit us on social media at Twitter, Airport Minute. Uh, you can go to Facebook, Airport Minute. Also, the Airport Minute Commanders Club, where everybody gets together and chats about these episodes. Uh, if you're not getting this uh, particular podcast, and you should be because we're 100 minutes in, uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Airport Minute and uh, click on subscribe when you see us. Uh, we'll be picking this up some more tomorrow as we talk about the, uh, the filming of Airport. So thanks for being with us today, and we will see you tomorrow here on the Airport Minute. So until then, good day. Bye. Nice going, sweetheart. Remind me to send a thank you note to Mr. Boeing. Thank <laughs> you.